The following program is brought to you by Caltech. Okay, from one-dimensional nanoscale confinement, we are going to go to two and three. And uh, Dr. Doug Bell of JPL and Professor Nai Chang-Ye of Caltech are going to tell us about possibilities, uh, many new possibilities, and their relevance to ultraviolet uh, detection and sensing. Okay, thanks, Shirley. Um, <clears throat> This is a, a fairly high-level talk, and most of the, the material included is, is not my work. In fact, very little of it. Uh, but I, I wanted to give some feeling for some aspects of nanotechnology that are relevant now to UV science, uh, exist, but perhaps aren't yet used for UV science, and also some technology that really isn't used for anything yet. It's very uh, kind of in its first stages and very long range, but worth thinking about uh, for possibilities down the road. So I, I thought uh, when you're talking about nanometer scale capabilities, maybe you can divide them into three conceptual categories. Uh, the, the first are capabilities that you use that allow you to make very small structures. Uh, so it's, it's nanotechnology that's concern, concerned with the, the front end of this, which is the fabrication of small structures that may then be used uh, because of their unique properties for some particular uh, measurement. There are also characterization tools that you use. Uh, again, these are nanometer scale techniques that are not directly involved with the function of the device, but are used uh, you need them to characterize devices that are very small. And finally, there are what most people think about with nanostructures, the, the ones that are functional, the ones that you incorporate into the devices because of unique properties, uh, and they're really part of the basic device concept. And in many cases, the concept wouldn't work without those capabilities. So, uh, so first, with fabrication, what you think of uh, as far as methods for making small things are just conventional submicron lithography and and the size scale of, of this lithography is getting pushed to smaller and smaller sizes all the time and uh, in a lot of cases you think of that as simply in terms of the ability to pack more and more stuff onto a chip with computers you think about uh, having faster and faster processors and more complicated architectures uh, for detectors, uh, and here's an example I show from uh, one of Eduardo Charbon's uh, uh, SPADS devices. Uh, it, it really does enable measurements uh, that might not be possible otherwise. Uh, this is a case where uh, SPADS are used for time-resolved uh, fo single photon detection, and uh, to do that time resolution at shorter and shorter time scales, you need to pack more and more processing uh, on pixel and on chip. And, and so the ability to, to put this uh, computing power on the chip itself really enables time resolution that wouldn't be possible otherwise. So uh, this is a case where lithography really does enable new measurements. Uh, you can also use nanometer scale features that are deliberately patterned on substrates, for example. Uh, the nanostructures themselves might not be functional parts of the device, 
but they might be used, uh, for instance, to uh, improve growth quality of materials, nucleating defects, or providing reduced constraints on epitaxy so that uh, you can grow structures where, because of critical thickness reasons or whatever, uh, you might be very limited growing planar structures. Uh, so one example from uh, Shadi Shahedapur's group at Albany uh, is the fabrication of these truncated polyhedrons on surfaces uh, as a template for growth. So these are not, uh, in some cases, I show some lasing uh, uh, polygons on the right, but in some cases they might not be used actually as functional structures, they might just be used in order to grow higher quality material, which then the device is, is fabricated in. And uh, I thank uh, Chris Burtness for this uh, slide. Uh, another um, reason for growing nanostructures might be, as I mentioned, a, a reduced constraints on epitaxial growth. And when you're growing uh, mixed, say, 3,5 materials or 3-nitride materials, you want to be able to engineer band gap in a structure, but usually what that entails is a change in lattice constant as you change materials, and that limits the properties of the material you grow. Either you can only grow very thin layers, uh, or you live with crystalline defects that occur from growing thicker layers. And by using nanowires, uh, you can imagine, uh, say, growing a tall vertical nanowire. You can grow those at much greater thickness, for instance, than you could a, a large planar layer uh, because of the cons constraints on the strain and the defects that are caused by that strain are much less with, with wires. Uh, characterization was kind of the second conceptual uh, part of nanotechnology that might be applicable to detectors. Uh, if you're going to make st small structures and they're going to be functional parts of the device, you really need to know how they operate. Uh, to first order, you just need to look at them, look at them structurally and electronically, but it's also nice to be able to actually actively probe them, maybe in a way that simulates the way they're, they're going to work in a device. And uh, there's way too many relevant techniques to talk about. I, I've focused a couple of slides on scanning probe microscopies because these have a lot of unique properties. They, they are really, in many cases, atomic scale, real space, non-destructive imaging of surfaces and interfaces. Uh, the most familiar of these is probably scanning tunneling microscopy. It's been around for uh, 30 years now. And other related techniques like ballistic electron emission microscopy, scanning tunneling luminescence, uh, the various force microscopies, atomic force, magnetic force, and of course many others. Uh, and in STM, if you're not familiar with it, it's a, a technique once you scan a sharp tip over a surface, and the tip and surface are both conducting, and you place a bias between tip and sample. And when the tip gets close enough, you can have electron tunneling across the vacuum gap into the material. And that tunneling current is extremely sensitive on distance between tip and sample. And so if you have a mechanical mechanism for positioning the tip that feeds back from the measurement of the tunnel current, you can mechanically control the tip position to maintain constant tunnel current and stabilize the tip uh, in less than a nanometer away from the surface to very high accuracy. And so then if you scan the tip over a surface, you can map the surface. Uh, ballistic electron emission microscopy is 
an extension of this where, in addition to doing standard STM on a surface, you might have a heterostructure and you want to uh, look at how electrons transport through that interface between, say, different layers. And so you measure another current, or in some case several currents, uh, at different depths, which uh, basically turns STM into a three-terminal measurement. Uh, and you can look at things like hot electron transport across interfaces. You can look at potential structures below the surface. Uh, and at least in electronic devices, uh, surfaces usually aren't important. Uh, interfaces uh, matter much more. Of course, in, in optoelectronic surfaces can uh, become more important. Uh, an example of an STM image, which is a, a beautiful example. Some of you have probably seen this or similar ones where uh, individual atoms were placed to form this corral, and you can see electron standing waves in the Fermi C within the corral. Uh, it's, it's really, a, it provides spectacular capabilities. Uh, ballistic electron emission microscopy uh, allows you in the top image there to see surface topography, in this case of a gold layer on silicon, and uh, at the same time have an interface image which shows transport across the interface between that gold and that silicon. And you can see variations that aren't always very obvious on the surface. Scanning tunneling luminescence, you can tunnel to a structure and measure light that's emitted from band gap transitions. So finally, uh, the area of functional nanostructures, which is in many ways the most interesting, because these are uh, devices where you're, you're incorporating nanostructures of all kinds, which, uh, because of quantum properties, uh, enable capabilities that wouldn't exist otherwise. And uh, well-known examples are quantum dots, nanowires, the various fullerenes, and uh, more recently, graphene. And finally, metamaterials, which is in its infancy right now. Um, quantum dots, uh, they have many uses and many types of devices. Some of them are conceptual at this point. Some are actually uh, in production. Uh, one property that you can think of that might be useful for detection is the fact that as you change the size of a quantum dot in the nanometer size scale, uh, if it's a semiconductor, you can change its band gap dramatically with size. Uh, in the case of something like tin, which is a semi-metal in bulk, uh, you can form a band gap and increase that band gap also as the size shrinks. So it's it forms a, a way of tuning response of a material by changing its size. Uh, and you can see that uh, the range of tunability is quite large once you get down to very small dots. Uh, quantum dots are also used in things like uh, infrared detectors, especially. Um, uh, the reason that uh, quantum dot infrared detectors have uh, started to be investigated quite a lot lately is, and in perhaps replacing quantum well detectors is the fact that for the transitions that are of interest in these infrared detectors, which are intra-subband transitions, you have these optical selection rules uh, that do not allow normally incident radiation. So, so people come up with these uh, schemes for patterning the surface uh, with some periodic structure that uh, changes normally incident light uh, to light incident at a large range of angles and allows absorption. So if the absorbing elements are now 
formed with quantum dots. Uh, these intrinsically don't have those selection rules that planar layers do, and so you can get direct absorption into layers that are patterned uh, throughout the device with quantum dots. Uh, and again, this is, this is a technique that's used for IR because of the particular selection rules that, that govern these intra-band transitions, but in general, it's uh, it, surface roughening, at least, is used in other wavelengths, and uh, quantum dots may also be useful in other, uh, say, band gap transition uh, devices. Here's an, uh, an idea that comes from PV of photovoltaics, uh, where often you're concerned with absorption by indirect materials, where, where the light can penetrate a long distance, but then uh, the minority carriers cannot travel very far after they're created. And so you're often faced with a situation where you have to penetrate a long distance to absorb, and then these carriers are left far from an absorbing interface uh, so that they can't make it uh, out of the device and be measured as a current. And so people have come up with these kind of columnar pillar uh, cylindrical PV structures where the normal direction, the absorbing direction is very long, and yet once carriers are formed, they only have a short distance to go before they're collected. Th this is a case where uh, you're not really relying on nanostructures for their quantum properties. It's more just uh, getting neat geometric effects from the structures. A similar thing is done also in, in photovoltaics. In this case, this is an idea from organic photovoltaics where you can make these interconnected networks uh, so that you can have a, a large thickness of this material and you can absorb anywhere uh, within this thickness, but wherever you absorb, you're very close to an interface, and so collection is normally uh, quite short. Uh, I showed a, a slide on this earlier about uh, using uh, small structures as emitters. Uh, Shadi Shadhapurta has given me this slide to uh, illustrate lasing in, in nano pyramids. Um, you actually can form little lasing cavities with these pyramids and see uh, emission from the pyramids themselves. Uh, delta doping you've heard quite a lot about today already. Uh, in silicon, but it's also a, a technique that can be used in other uh, material systems. We are now using it uh, to look at um, band structure engineering of gallium nitride photocathodes. Uh, and the idea here is that uh, photocathodes, you like to have uh, a situation where you have negative electron affinity with the vacuum level uh, below the conduction band. To do that, people will normally cesiate the surfaces and then encapsulate in a sealed tube to protect that uh, very reactive cesiated surface. Uh, it'd be nice to have uh, NEA uh, photocathode that doesn't have to be sealed in a tube and doesn't have that cesiated layer. So we're looking at ways to use delta doping to, to engineer the bands so that you have the proper band structure for NEA without cesiation. Uh, these are examples of the effect. Uh, if you look at, um, as a function of photon energy, you're just taking a spectrum of, of the current that you get from these photocathodes as a function of energy. Uh, 3.4 eV would be the band gap of gallium nitride, and that's where you would see a threshold if you had negative electron affinity. Uh, this is with no delta layer, a very high threshold above 5 volts. As you put in a delta layer, you can lower this substantially, although not yet to the uh, NEA.
told, but then if you go to GAN, ALGAN structures, uh, you then have the possibility, because of the lower work function of ALGAN and proper doping, to get negative electron affinity. And here's an example where you see photoemission with a threshold about at the band gap of gallium nitride. So uh, we think that it is possible using this very precise doping placement technique uh, to do things with photocathodes that uh, haven't been done before. Uh, Chris Burton has provided this slide also showing, uh, as I mentioned earlier, long, tall gallium nitride nanowire wires for photocathodes and have shown that uh, already, in comparison to this red line, which is the best planar film results, uh, you're getting results that are fairly competitive with uh, planar photocathodes and gallium nitride. Uh, nanowires have also uh, been used in cross geometries and other geometries as junction devices, uh, transistors, but also uh, Here's a paper that uh, talked about using crossed um, nanowires for APD structures. In this case, silicon cadmium sulfide nanowires and with contacts. And, and finally, uh, just some very, very qualitative dis discussion of metamaterials. Uh, not that they have shown any application for UV science yet, but they're incredibly interesting materials that have uh, a lot of promise. They're really just in their infancy. There are materials that are structured in order to have unique uh, interactions with light. And the two main uh, categories of these materials are photonic crystals and negative index materials. Um, photonic crystals, this is just a model, uh, are, are st periodic structures with uh, structure dimensions on the order of the wavelength of light. So, so they're much larger than atomic scale uh, crystal lattices, and uh, that's because that you're dealing now with light wavelengths, which are normally much longer than electron wavelengths. And with even longer wavelengths, like millimeter wave or uh, RF, these are macroscopic crystal structures. You can just make them on your bench top and, and verify their properties on long wavelengths. And as you get down towards um, IR visible and even UV, it becomes much more challenging because this, the crystal uh, dimension becomes much smaller. But uh, it, it's a wide open field. Negative index materials, just shown schematically, you probably, a lot of you have probably seen this, um, are materials where you, you actually get negative index of refraction uh, so that if you look at the refracted light uh, as it crosses this interface, it actually is refracted to the same direction to the normal that the incoming light is. So you'll get this situation where it comes in and it's refracted like that instead of conventionally like that. And this is just done by, by engineering structures that simulate negative permeability and negative uh, permittivity, uh, giving you a negative N value. And uh, a lot of the work that's been done in this field so far is modeling, but there have been some actual uh, experiments done that illustrate some of these properties. Here was one that showed uh, these structures fabricated that give, uh, theoretically at least, perfect absorption of light. Uh, in practice, the 
the absorption measure was something like 96%, but uh, it's expected to be able to be much better. Um, invisibility devices, an ideal cylindrical cloak, you can have material that basically reconstructs the light on the other side uh, after it impinges on an object, and uh, at least in principle, again, you can cloak that object and make it invisible. And, and all these metamaterials ideas uh, dealing with how you, in a precise way, control how light interacts with material, uh, you can imagine down the road that such ideas would be of interest in detectors as well. I mean, that's, that's one of the things you like to do is control the interaction of incoming light with the detector structure. So just to conclude, um, I tried to cover just in a very qualitative way uh, some of the ideas that have already contributed to UV detection, or at least uh, optical detection, and talked also about some that maybe have some promise uh, 10, 20, or, or 50 years down the road. Uh, talked about the ability to fabricate, the ability to characterize, and finally the properties of nanostructures which are incorporated as functional parts of um, devices or detector structures. Um, okay, thanks. Uh, Doug gave a good introduction, so that helped uh, the topic that I'm going to talk about. So I don't work on any detectors, and not, not at all UV detectors. I work on nano stuff. But I hope that what I'm going to tell you today can help you think out of the box to see what sort of um, uh, what kind of possibilities there are out there. There are many interesting things that are going on with um, nanostructures, and so hopefully you'll get some ideas. Okay, um, so I will talk about novel physical properties of nanoengineering structures, uh, structures and surface states. Um, and these are the topics I'll, Doug already mentioned a lot, nanotechnology, nanomaterials. Um, so, so this I can really go very quickly. Uh, there are some interesting novel effects by nanoengineering, and so I will summarize a few effects that are the examples that I will show today. So I will talk about, for instance, quantum confinement, the effects of quantum confinement, and I will use examples as, uh, of nanowires, and it turns out that that's the same example Doug was using, but I will go into a little more details. And then I'll talk about, you can use strain, actually, um, strain engineering in two-dimensional graphene. That's a, a monoatomic layer uh, carbon material. And actually, you can use that uh, to um, do strain-engineered nano, um, nanotransistors, actually, and various other things. And also, you can combine the effects of strain and quantum confinement. And the, the example I will show is silicon nanopillars. And finally, there's a new class of material that's generating a lot of excitement in condensed matter physics. I will tell you some exciting, interesting things that happen down to atomic scale, uh, also on surfaces. And I will leave it to you to see if, whether there might be any relevant that you could use these systems for, for future consideration. Uh, so this some of the work. I will talk about other people's work as well as some of the work uh, done at Caltech uh, in collaboration with uh, various people. And in the interest of time, I will just say that I collaborate with uh, Axel Scherer, uh, Professor Kong Wang at UCLA, Mark Bacharach at UC Riverside.
Okay, so let's go for the first uh, introductory part. And you have heard a lot. Uh, Doug gave a very good introduction. So basically, nanotechnology, you can uh, have a lot of things that um, become capable in, down to nanoscale. And uh, you can also, with nanoengineering, uh, you can actually study low-dimensional physics uh, in quantum confinement. And that's something usually we condensed matter physicists are very interested in. And then also there are various applications for um, a wide range of capabilities. And um, then, of course, reduced dimensions. You have seen Doug mention examples of quantum dots in zero dimension, uh, also nanowires. And then I will mention something interesting about two-dimensional graphene. Um, so I mentioned that actually when you think about the nano world, there are several things that, uh, that can give rise to very interesting novel uh, properties, uh, several effects. For instance, quantum confinement, naturally, you change the dimensionality, and I will use this example, silicon nanowires. Uh, you can have strain uh, on nanomaterials, and that actually can cause dramatic effects. An example I will show you today is that you can strain graphene down to nanoscale, and that would actually produce pseudo-magnetic fields that are gigantic, uh, up to hundreds or tens to hundreds of Tesla, and that actually is related to engineering energy gaps. Also, you, like, you were talking about, uh, people were talking about delta doping. Well, I can show you we can, without applying any charge, just by doing strain, you can actually have strong charging effect uh, down to atomic scale. Um, so you can have strain engineering, that's something interesting to think about. And then we can combine the two, I will show you something about silicon nanopillars. Um, basically, we do a lot of uh, scanning tunneling spectroscopy studies of nanosystems, and I will show you interesting physical properties that are modified down to nanoscales. And then finally, uh, I will show you that when you're, uh, you, you, we can actually look at quantum impurities down to atomic scale and see how that affects electronic properties on surface. And then you can change the dimensionality from 3D to 2D for a material called topological insulators, and actually that has dramatic effect on electronic properties as well. Okay, so um, let's look at the first uh, example of quantum confinement. Uh, you have heard uh, Doug said about nanowires, and so there are many interesting things one can consider using nanowires. Um, people actually have demonstrated using nanowires to detect photons in the visible light range. In principle, these can be extended to uh, ultraviolet light, I believe. And so, for instance, this is an artist uh, illustration of a nanowire you put contacts on. You can shine it with uh, photons, and then what happens is that the absorption this, suppose if it's a germanium wire, uh, about 25 nanometer in radius, then the typical bulk germanium, uh, the absorption has this kind of uh, um, spectrum. But then when you start going to uh, nano dimensions, the absorption actually becomes very different. As you make the thing uh, thinner and thinner, the absorption actually, um, the peaks of uh, absorptions will move down to uh, shorter wavelengths. So one can imagine that you go below 10 nanometers, you can start moving into UV range. Right now, this is like uh, infrared, uh, visible light range. Um, okay, and then um, one very nice thing about nanowires is that not only that you, you can uh, control the dimension to change the absorption spectrum, you can also um, play with the polarization and different modes. And so actually, um, uh, nanowires can be polarization sensitive and can be used as um, uh, avalanche photo uh, detectors. Um, and they also can be used for lacing, and you have heard Doug talk about them. 
Uh, so this is an example that I showed you earlier, and I'll just uh, mention a little bit more. So you can make, instead of one single nanowire, you can make two nanowires and make them into a, a P-junction silicon and N-junction uh, cadmium, uh, cadmium um, sulfide. And then this junction actually could have very dramatic absorption, very highly localized absorption uh, spectrum. And in this case, it was demonstrated for four 488 nanometer uh, laser light, and you, you can actually design it, and I think it can go to even shorter wavelengths. But this is an illustration showing that if you have one uh, N-type and then two P-type wires, and actually uh, at the junctions, you can have very sharp absorption peaks, uh, very sharp photocurrents, and then they don't have crosstalks. So you can actually start designing things uh, down to very interesting geometries. Uh, and also there, there are polarization sensitivity. And so that's something quite useful um, that if you just uh, make things down to nanowires, you can actually see the effects of quantum confinement and you can design uh, the wavelengths, et cetera. Now the next thing is I will tell you something about what we do um, in graphene. Uh, carbon is actually something extremely interesting and of course exists um, everywhere. And in zero dimension you have buckyball, one dimension you have carbon nanotubes, 2D you have graphene, and 3D you have graphite. Uh, in graphene, that was, uh, as you know, the physics of graphene was um, awarded the Nobel Prize last year because there are lots of excitement, um, very interesting things associated with physical properties and applications of graphene. Um, they have one unique property, that is, um, if you have single layer graphene, actually the energy versus momentum dispersion relation is a so-called Dirac cone, it's a linear dispersion relation, and therefore, um, the Actually, the slope is proportional to the Fermi velocity and it has nothing to do with uh, electronic mass. And so this is a very, very interesting situation that can manifest relativistic physics uh, in a condensed matter physics system. Um, and in typical graphene, you have, um, um, if, you, if I draw this in real space and then convert it to uh, a reciprocal space, and actually you have two uh, inequivalent sites. You have um, this um, red and versus yellow, uh, they are different um, sites, and these sites are called K points, um, K and K prime points, and these are the sites where linear dispersion relation occurs, and these are called Dirac cones. And so actually, the Dirac cones, you can actually work out the, the energy dispersion relation, um, so you see that the energy is proportional to the uh, momentum uh, through a Fermi velocity, mass is nowhere to be found. That's actually a very interesting. And then you can play with uh, the Fermi level. You can change it, uh, you have bipolar effect. You can go to holes or go to electrons. And so that's something very interesting. But actually there are many, many applications that are possible due to uh, unique properties of, of um, graphene. Um, I won't go through the details in the interest of time, but um, it's an exciting material that people are considering using for beyond silicon CMOS applications. Um, so I will show you in the next thing is that because we have one monoatomic layer, it's actually very susceptible to the environment. It's just one atomic layer. And so actually, if you have disorder, that can have various effects. You can have um, intrinsic disorder due to topological defects or surface curvatures, and um, you can also have um, extrinsic disorder, various other types of disorder by adding other things on top, or you have um, defects or cracks, et cetera. So this is an image that we took uh, of graphene on silicon dioxide substrate, and you see it's not totally flat. And actually there are consequences, I will show you in a second. 
But overall, you can talk about um, if you have disorder, and disorder you can design it or, or they are there just accidentally, but disorder actually can be described in terms of Hamiltonians, and they, I'll, I won't go into the details. Effectively, there are two effects. Um, you can have typical disorder, uh, some disorder that would only change local site energies. What that would do is that the disorder would just cause scattering, produce a scalar potential. Another type of disorder, which is related to um, shear strain, I will show you in a second, is very uh, uh, interesting. That is, it would give rise to, uh, um, if you change the PZ orbitals of the uh, wave function, it turns out that you can have both scattering due to scalar potential or a pseudo-magnetic field. Um, electronically, you can describe it in terms of coupling to a vector potential in, instead of a scalar potential. You have actually both effects. And this pseudo potential is actually coupled to the pseudo spin. The pseudo spin is related to the k and k prime uh, momentum that I talked about earlier. They are not real spins, but they are actually pseudo spins in the momentum space. And so if you do that, actually, um, so if you somehow play with the lattice constant A, and if you cause strain so that you have displacement fields in your material, um, then actually you can induce a vector potential. And this is, I won't go through how theoretically it's derived. But what's interesting is that if you have a vector potential, as you all know, Maxwell equation would say that you have a pseudo-magnetic field. And a pseudo-magnetic field, these things actually can happen in nanoscale, as I will show you in a second. So we do STM measurements. Um, so Doug already explained it. I'll skip this. Um, so I have told you that in graphene, you have two inequivalent sites, so the green and the red here. Now, if you deliberately strain them in a unique way, um, so it would become like this. And if that's the case, actually theorists calculated that the density of states versus energy can show a gigantic conductance peak at zero bias, um, and then you have Landau levels, pseudo uh, Landau levels, just completely induced by strain, not a real magnetic field. And then different, magnetic, different strain will cause different degrees of uh, peaks. And actually for, for graphene, um, this separation of Landau levels is proportional to square root of an integer, not um, proportional to integer, unlike in typical two-dimensional electron gas. OK, so this is a theoretical prediction. Actually, it was observed uh, both by uh, uh, Berkeley group and our group at Caltech. Um, the Berkeley group, they actually, what they found was that when they grow graphene on, um, on platinum, 111 surface, they can form these nanobubbles. These nanobubbles are the ideal geometry for uh, manifesting the effect I just told you earlier. And so what happened is that if you go across seeded dimension, this is done with STM, so you can really go down to, to uh, atomic scale. This is two nanometer nanobubble. You go from this point to that point. So if you follow, this is the Z direction goes up and down uh, the, the height. And then you can actually compute the corresponding pseudo-magnetic fields by actually analyzing the peaks, the energy separation. This is tunneling conductance versus biased voltage. And uh, the separation we indicate uh, between peaks, we indicate the, uh, the, the, the energy gaps due to uh, strain. And this energy gaps is associated with the pseudo-magnetic field through this relationship. So it turns out that if you look at the red, you get a pseudo-magnetic field that's as large as hundreds of Tesla. That's dramatic. Uh, that corresponds to el several electron volts. And so by doing this, just nothing but strain, you don't have to apply a magnetic field. You actually see 
uh, effects. And this is in contrast to if you apply a real magnetic field, then actually your density of states will go uh, up and down like this. You will really hit zero. What I showed you earlier, if pseudo-magnetic fields, there will be a background. But actually, we also see that uh, when we look at uh, graphene grown on um, copper using chemical vapor deposition, what happened is that when you cool down the sample, it turns out this is not a controlled way. But when you cool down the sample, um, actually, uh, graphene uh, expands and copper shrinks. And so initially, they're epitaxially uh, matched. But then as you change the temperature, cool down to low temperatures, it turns out that you look at this atomic image of graphene surface, and you see very, very distorted uh, graphene uh, atomic structures. And so I call this some alpha region, beta region. They actually have different strain. And then if you look at it, if I take this line across, you see these height variations um, that, are, that oscillates at atomic scale. And there's a background, but then there are these very large height variation, about one nanometer, only over three nanometer range. So this is a gigantic strain. And so what would happen? When I do that, if I take Fourier transformation of this map, it's a completely distorted for, uh, uh, surface. And then if I take density of state spectrum at different regions, I find these, this is more like what graphene should be, except I have a large zero bias. And it's, it doesn't go to zero. And then you see these oscillations. And this beta region, you see other oscillations. Um, if I take a line across this, the density of states that's proportional to the conductance versus energy shows dramatic variation. So I can subtract off the background. And lo and behold, what happened is, for instance, if I show this region, you see these peaks. And they are nicely separated according to what theory would predict uh, with a pseudo-magnetic field as large as tens of Teslas. And then the corresponding magnetic length is really in the nanometer range. So that's indeed uh, consistent with theoretical prediction. And different regions would have different pseudo-magnetic fields. Um, so what, what, uh, what, what's going on with this? Well, actually, it's related to strain. And then we can also, because we have atomic resolution, we can map out the strain map. And if you look at this, this is a strain map. Um, you have maximum strain between two regions that are in interfacing. And then this is really down to atomic scale. This is maximum strain. Um, and in different regions, then you have different um, magnetic um, fields. Also, this strain can give rise to gigantic charging effect. It turns out, so you see this is topography. And I showed you earlier, this is the strain map. Okay, And these are just different components and sum them up. Um, now you look at the conductance. This is a conductance map taken at constant bias voltage, um, different bias voltages. And you see that really, wherever its strongest strength has the highest conductance. And so you actually can imagine that one can start talking about doping without really putting ch charge, but instead use strain to confine electrons. And actually, we have uh, done some simulations if we actually try to design our strain and make them into arrays. In principle, you can actually make resistors, uh, um, uh, resistive measurements, and make, make uh, three terminal devices to have source strain, and then use the silicon as the back gate. Um, you can actually tune the biased voltage and then actually play with, um, play with the, the ratio of gain and um, and uh, the bottom, uh, you can have a large ratio of peak and bottom. And so, so this height actually can be engineered also. So this is potentially uh, an interesting um, transistor project. Uh, 
Okay, I see my time is almost up. <laughs> okay, and so now, um, and also if you have com combined effects of uh, nanopillars, you can make nanopillars using lithographic techniques or using uh, self-assembled growths or other techniques. Um, this is in uh, Professor Axochera's group. He actually deliberately made these, he made these uh, uh, nanopillars, then he deliberately oxidized them at high temperatures, and by controlling the oxidation temperature, um, he can actually um, uh, have uh, silicon oxide surfaces with a leftover uh, very, very strained silicon between 2 and 10 nanometer wide. Um, how does he know that? Well, he actually could do a TEM images and seeing that the, um, the pillar has silicon oxide insulation and, and then has a coated silicon, uh, has silicon, pure silicon inside. What about the electronic properties? What we did was that we etch off the surface of the pillars and just look at STM. And this is topography. You see these are where the pillars used to be. We did chemical etching and so the surface was no longer even, but these are where the pillars were. But if I go along this line, go along distance, go along this line, then really uh, I can measure the conductance versus uh, energy, and that would tell me the energy gap. Look at this. So these are periodic structures of the, the periods of separation, but the energy gap is actually up to three electron volts. You all know silicon has an indirect gap of 1.1 electron volt. Now we have a direct band gap of three electron volts. If I zoom into one pillar, I actually see the conductance show this is really nanoscale. This is one pillar, and the rest is all insulating, low conductance. Uh, this bar indicates the conductance, high and low conductance. And here you see that you can zoom in and really see a very, very narrow region that shows um, conductance. And so this is something you can actually, uh, uh, you can actually show um, uh, nanoengineering. And so the idea you can use this to make all kinds of things like, uh, like transistors. Okay, I think my time is uh, up, and so I will just show you quickly um, what I hope to tell you, but I won't have much time to tell you. Um, this is a new class of material called topological insulators. And it's a new class of material that has, uh, that's an insulator in the bulk limit, but its surface is a surface, topologically protected surface um, that actually has some interesting properties. Um, the surface is looking like, just like graphene with a Dirac cone. And so there's a Dirac point. This is energy versus momentum. There's a Dirac point. And you can move your en Fermi energy somewhere. But here you have this uh, conduction band, and you have valence band. Um, but now what happened is that this surface state has dramatic properties. They're topologically protected, meaning that they're very insensitive to good impurities, I, uh, um, certain types of impurities. And also the spin states of this thing actually shows um, their helical spin liquid, meaning that the spin is going along one direction and uh, for negative momentum will be going along the other direction. For that reason, backscattering is strongly suppressed because when you try to flip the spin, it will cost you a lot of energy. That will cost you the bulk energy that's comparable to spin orbit interaction. Okay, and so these materials, uh, this is TM image of these materials, we get them from MBE growth. Now again, to show you the power of nano characterizations. So this is a conductance map of a surface of such a material. And I go along, you can see atomic resolution uh, in conductance. And now if I go along this region that doesn't show any dramatic features, the conductance shows very, just like what you would expect for these types of materials, nothing very interesting. 
But as I go across one impurity, you look at this gigantic Himalaya mountain or sharp peak of conductance that show up right there. And I can go along a different atom, uh, two of them. And so two impurities, you see them. And then if I go to this one, it's also like that. What's interesting is that if I go in between, between two impurities, then they show nothing. So this is going along this direction, going along this direction. They show nothing in between um, at low energies, but show dramatic oscillations at high energies. This low energy part corresponds to where the surface state is, and the high energy part corresponds to bulk state. So when you put two impurities very close to each other, what's interesting is that because of topological protection, um, I won't have time to explain what it is. Um, this is another example, uh, impurities in between. You see gigantic oscillations at low energies uh, in the bulk, but the surface state is very tranquil. Um, that's what this, the, the surface state is supposed to be, even though these atoms are only a few angstroms apart. So that's a dramatic illustration of topological protection. But then if we play with the Fermi level of the, this material, when the Fermi level gets higher, actually um, this resonance, we call it impurity resonance, becomes much suppressed. And that's because when your Fermi energy is higher, you have strong screening. And actually, we, we have calculated theoretically. Um, th this is a theoretical paper, but we can calculate um, the results. And really, it's Fermi energy sensitive. Uh, and, and these are the impurities um, that are very sensitive to the Fermi energy. So the point is that these materials are very insensitive to, to um, atomic scale, um, to, to impurities um, on the surface, provided that you stay somewhat away from the impurities. However, if you have bad impurities, meaning impurities that will perturb the spin orbit interaction like silver, then what happens is that if you try to look at Landau levels, that's applying a magnetic field, you see quantum oscillations indicating how coherent the material is. Or when you're actually putting impurities like silver, you actually cause dramatic suppression of the Landau levels. That means you're ruining the coherence of these materials. So it really depends on the type of impurities. And so that's something you can, you can think of. I will skip this all together. Um, it's about dimensional crossover. When you make samples thin enough, you can uh, fundamentally change the properties. But just to show you, you make samples six, 60 quintuple layer thick, that means roughly about 60 nanometers, six, and you see things are changing. As three quintuple layer thickness, you become, you start showing us uh, an insulating system. But uh, I will just skip that all together. So let me summarize. Uh, so basically, I've shown you some na uh, novel nanostructures um, like st uh, strand silicon nanopillars, uh, semiconducting nanowires, uh, graphene-based nano devices, quantum impurities on topological insulators. All of these actually can exhibit uh, unique physical properties that you don't see in a microscopic world. And so um, one can probably think, try to think out of the box uh, you, to utilize nanoengineering um, by um, to, to control interesting, to create interesting properties. Uh, for instance, you can try to control the quantum confinement, strain, impurities, and sample thicknesses. And all of these probably can be uh, used for possible designer uh, UV detectors. Okay, thank you. This program is brought to you by Caltech. Visit us at caltech.edu.